Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the 34th episode of The Flowered Path. How are you doing tonight, Justin? All right. 34 episodes. Time does fly. Really seems like I just started this last month. I know it's been well over a year now, but I guess the way things go running two podcasts and stuff, I looked at the number for this one. I was like, 34? Wow. Of course, the other podcast is up to 450-some, so... (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> no comparison. Probably why it feels like such a young show. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Later in the show, I will be talking with Michael Lichens about The Pope's Exorcist, a book from Sophia Institute Press. But before we get to that, let's tackle some news stories. First story comes from Church Pop from February 6, 2024. Statue of Our Lady of Mount Carmel remains untouched after devastating forest fire in Colombia. A recent forest fire destroyed nearly 500 acres of vegetation in North Santander in Colombia. Amid the fire's destruction, a completely intact statue of Our Lady of Mount Carmel was found. The statue was found in the Fontibon village in the municipality of Pamplona, Colombia. The images went viral on social networks. Local media outward, Correo Espresso, said volunteers administering aid and donations found the statue. It made quite an impression on us. We were going to the Fontibon village to deliver aid, and on the edge of the road was this little virgin in perfect condition in the middle of what was the fire. I consider this a miracle, one person said. We will put links to this news story in the show notes, it's definitely worth going there to check out the images because literally everything around this statue is burnt. Yeah, it's one of those small statues, too, where it's like a, I only know it as the more derogatory term of bathtub Marys, but where they have like a 
covering a canopy mm-hmm. like she's in a grotto cave it's one of those things and you can see just all the grass is completely charred around it but it's just untouched you don't even see like scorch yeah. marks yeah, on the, the statue and i mean they goes right up to it the burden grass goes right up to the statue to the marble that's sitting on yeah yeah and it has i don't know if it's a rosary or something around its neck the statue and i don't know what that's made from nor do i know what the statue is made from but nothing is melted either yeah there's a lot of images of it here and i unfortunately have personal experience with fires and oh yeah that's not how they behave (laughs) yeah these are the kind of things i think non-believers can just look at and just brush off you know for them it's easy to just say well nothing you know yeah and you know if you want to get super scientific about it maybe there is some kind of explanation but i don't know it's just what are the chances you know what are the chances yeah if it isn't some sort of miracle i certainly love the symbolism of it let's put it that way oh certainly yeah i mean it reminds me i was told once about somebody who became catholic over seeing these it was either jesus or mary statues i don't remember which but they were among other statues in a home and they would just never gather dust and and so it was one of those things where yeah the priest telling it he kind of laughed at it but it's also just like you know if that is the case like Mm -hmm. That is unusual. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think it shows that these statues, these images are actually important to the divine, to God and Jesus, that they do use them. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. And I will forever stand up for the right to use icons and statues and so forth. St. John Damascene was my saint for confirmation for that reason. Specifically why I chose him, because he defended it so righteously in his time. All right, the next story comes from, what is this? This is a Fox news station. It looks like Fox 8 from Cleveland, Ohio. No explanation inside Northeast Ohio's Miracle House. Canton, Ohio. More healings are being reported at a local house connected with a woman who lived there and is being investigated by the Roman Catholic Diocese for sainthood. There is truly no explanation for his recovery, said Betsy Dvorak. The miraculous events began back in 1939 when a humble woman named Rhoda Wise lived in the three-room depression shack located at 2337 25th Street Northeast in Canton. Rhoda and her husband George had suffered many hardships including losing a child. They were raising a beloved adopted daughter when Rhoda was diagnosed with cancer and a lethal infection caused by the removal of a 39-pound tumor. It was a time before antibiotics and doctors sent her home to die. So she prayed because that's all she could do, said Karen Sigler, general manager at the nonprofit Rhoda Wise Home in Grotto. Prayers, she says, were answered by Jesus and St. Therese, known as the Little Flower of Jesus for promising to send a shower of roses from heaven. Jesus came and sat in the chair by her bed. She asked him, Have you come for me? And he said, No, your time hasn't come yet, said Sigler. A month later, he returned with St. Therese. 
and she was the one who put her hands on Rhoda's abdomen, and her abdomen was completely healed. A malformed foot was also healed. Rhoda then developed stigmata, what many Christians believe is the spontaneous bleeding on the body corresponding with the crucifixion wounds of Jesus. For more than two years, Sigler says, she bled profusely from her head, hands, and feet, but she never complained about the suffering. She accepted it so that others might be healed. As word spread, large crowds flocked to the home and were photographed there, hoping to witness one of the heavenly visits, which continued up to her death in 1948. Photographs taken from the time and, and witnesses reported seeing an unexplained bright light pouring from the home and rose petals left with an image of St. Therese. The petals, bandages from stigmata, and the chair where they said Jesus sat on are all on display at the home. Now, over 75 years since Rhoda's death, the faithful continue to flock there hoping for their own miracles. During one of the visits, Jesus blessed the water in a large jug and had told Rhoda that those that use this water would be rewarded for their faith, said Sigler. There have been countless cures documented, said Sigler, which continue to this day from minor to truly miraculous. Karen can't share all of them because in 2017, the Diocese of Youngstown declared Rhoda a servant of God, which is a step towards canonization and sainthood. As such, the documents have been sent to Rome to be vetted and can't be discussed. However, Dr. Mark Shug and his wife Betsy Dvorak shared their incredible experience with Fox 8's Suzanne Stratford. Truthfully, just as a doctor, I felt there's no way I'm getting out of this hospital, said Dr. Shug. I was having a hard time breathing. I couldn't walk. Dr. Shug was diagnosed with stage 4 sarcoma. Every doctor only gave him six months to live. He had 48 tumors, said Betsy, who's also a respiratory therapist. 40 tumors in his lungs and the remaining tumors were in his liver, and once you get the tumors in the liver, they only have months to live. The couple sought help at Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York, where doctors removed the largest tumor from his liver, which was 10 centimeters by 12 centimeters. But he was still in incredible pain, and the situation looked dire. I can't tell you how bad it was, said Dr. Shog. That's when a friend told his wife about Rhoda Wise. He was so ill, I couldn't physically bring him down there. But I brought a piece of his clothing down there, and I put it in the chair Jesus sat in, said Betsy. And she says something miraculous happened. Mark had not gotten out of bed in four months, but suddenly wanted to go to the grocery store and even walk by himself. Then Mark made the trip to Canton himself. Now, six years later, Dr. Shog is defying the odds. Literally, it was miraculous, said Betsy. He's doing great, he's receiving treatment, and he's happy. I am six years later, said Dr. Shog. My lungs are stable. The only place I have a tumor left is in the liver, and I don't know if I'd be here if I didn't go to Rota Wise. I mean, to me, it's been a miracle. Andrea Kissel-Conti also told Fox 8 how she had visited the home when she was five years old with an incurable kidney disease. I had a vision of St. Therese, and she was saying to me, in a little while, tell them you're going to get better. In a little while, tell them you're going to get better. And she was smiling, and the whole time there were rose petals just falling and I've never had to go to the doctor with any kidney disease at all, ever. Another woman, Bobby McKnight, was suffering from debilitating double vision, which vanished. When she went to her doctor, she said, he goes, hmph, you can see. And I said, yeah, I can. He said, what happened? And I told him, and he said, yeah, I believe in miracles. The nonprofit home is always free to visit and open to everyone, regardless of their faith. Karen says not everyone who comes is healed, and some are healed without even asking, but all are welcome. 
It's true if we get to see the goodness of God over and over again, said Sigler. I had no idea about this woman or this home. This is so interesting to me. Rhoda Wise, I have heard of before. I knew that there was this American mystic and stigmatic woman. I've seen her images a few times, but I've never really read too much about her. And before this article, too, I did not know that her home was a shrine. I did not know she is a servant of God now. And I didn't know about all these healings. This is really interesting. Yeah. Don't look for it anytime soon, but I'm sort of preparing some shows on some other stigmatics from the past. And she would make a nice addition to those shows. Yeah. Because this is very interesting. And it's very similar. So many of these stories of these people who developed the stigmata are kind of similar. Yeah. And like the others... The others that I have read and investigated a lot, um, they often have a lot of these supernatural visits. Mm -hmm. So you can see in this article, they mention a chair that Jesus sat in. Yeah. So, I mean, that's indicating that there was a very physical presence there. Yeah, and the the shower of rose petals, I mean, it's it's stunning. Yeah, yeah, so... So she had a St. Therese there as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is going to go on my to-visit list. I definitely have to see this place. Oh, certainly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm thinking it too when I get back up there in Pennsylvania. I might as well see if I can make a trip to Ohio too. I might reach out to the people at the Road of Wise Home and see if we can maybe get them to talk to us. I think that'd be a really interesting show. Yeah. Next story comes from Catholic News Agency from February 12th, 2024. The image of Our Lady of Lourdes that's not there, but everyone sees it. Those who visit the chapel of Our Lady of Lourdes Shrine in the city of Alta Gracia in Cordoba Province, Argentina, witness a phenomenon that has no explanation. In the niche that is part of the altarpiece above the altar, an image of the Virgin Mary can be seen. Although without a doubt, the space is empty. There is nothing there. According to the Argentine news agency, AICA, what is seen is not a flat image, but rather a relief, a three-dimensional image with folds in the garment. It is also not a psychological illusion resulting from the exaggerated devotion of some pilgrims. Everyone, believers or not, sees it. Additionally, the image appears in photos taken there. A curious fact is that the image is clearly seen from the front door of the church, and then fades as one slowly approaches the altar. Sources from Our Lady of Lourdes Shrine in Alta Gracia told ACI Presna, CNA Spanish-language news partner, that although there is no specific statement from the Archdiocese of Cordoba where the shrine is located, everything is still the same. The image can be seen just as on the first day or more, a little more. As for the image in the niche, everything remains the same and intact, the statement said. Since it was built at the beginning of the 20th century, the shrine has been an important pilgrimage site. In 2023, about 30,000 pilgrims came from the city of Cordoba, 22 miles away. How did the phenomenon originate? 
The chapel of the Virgin of Alta Gracia is located on a large property where in 1916 a replica was dedicated to the grotto in Lourdes, France, where the Virgin appeared in 1858 to St. Bernadette. In 1922, a commission was formed to build a chapel near the grotto. The first stone was laid in 1924, and in 1927, the Bishop of Cordoba blessed the chapel. For many years, there was a statue of Our Lady of Lourdes in Cordoba in the center of the church's altarpiece. In mid-2011, it was removed from its niche, or base, to be restored, and is currently located at the foot of the niche that was left empty. One day, one of the priests in charge of the shrine was going to close the chapel, and from the main door he saw an image that looked like it was made of plaster in the empty space. He approached several times, and each time he did so, he noticed that the image he saw from a certain distance faded. The truth was that there was actually no image, but he saw it. Because of the phenomenon, visible to anyone, the Descalced Carmelite Friars of the Shrine issued a statement in 2011 noting that the manifestation of the image of the Most Holy Virgin Mary has no explanation at the moment. It must be interpreted by the people of God as a sign to increase and deepen the Christian faith and to inspire the hearts of men, conversion to the love of God, and their participation in the life of the church, they said. The only message of the Virgin is none other than that which she has manifested in her life among men and is recorded in the Gospel as a divine revelation and kept in the deposit of the Catholic faith, the priest said. There's an image of of this as well. There's a photograph with the article. I really want to know what the material is that this is appearing on. It's intense, honestly, I think, to look at that. It has a almost a photographic negative look to it. It, it really it kind of reminds me of the image on the shroud. Yeah. And it looks like there's something over her head. Mhm, it does. There'll be links in the show notes to this article, and you can see the image. It's at the top of the article. Whatever this image is, it is able to be photographed. You can see it. It's very, very interesting. What gets me is how they say, like, they can see this from the door, and then as they walk in, the image disappears. Yeah. It's unusual. It is definitely there. You can see the folds in the fabric. It does look dimensional. It has a, a photographic quality to it. Yeah. Next is also from the Catholic News Agency. This is from February 15th, 2024. Vatican hosts veneration of relics of 21 Coptic martyrs of Libya on first feast day. The relics of 21 Coptic martyrs killed by ISIS in Libya will be venerated in St. Peter's Basilica on Thursday evening at an ecumenical prayer service marking their first official feast day in the Catholic Church. The evening vespers at the Vatican will commemorate the ninth anniversary of the martyrdom of the 21 Coptic Orthodox men who were beheaded by the Islamic State on a beach in Libya on February 15, 2015. Pope Francis added the 21 Coptic martyrs to the Roman Martyrology, the Church's official list of saints, last May, as he met with the head of the Coptic Orthodox Church of Alexandria, Tawadros II. Cardinal Koch, Prefect of the Vatican Dicastery for Promoting Christian Unity, will preside over the ecumenical prayer at 5 p.m. in the choir chapel of St. Peter's Basilica. A Coptic choir will provide the music for the liturgy. A Coptic church dedicated to the 21 martyrs of Libya was opened in 2018 in the village of Al-Or in Egypt, a village that was home to 13 of the martyred men. The Coptic Orthodox Church declared the 21 Coptic Christians as martyr saints 
within only a week of their murder in 2015 along the Libyan coast. Pope Francis's inclusion of the martyrs in the Roman martyrology in 2023 marked a significant moment in ecumenical relations between the Catholic Church and the Coptic Orthodox Church, which is the largest Christian denomination in majority Muslim Egypt. The Roman Martyrology is an official list of saints and blesseds, including martyrs recognized in the liturgy of the Catholic Church. The list is ordered according to the Church's calendar of feast days. These martyrs were baptized not only in the water and spirit, but also in blood, a blood that is the seed for unity of all Christ's followers, Pope Francis said at the time. The Feast of the Martyrs, referred to as the 21 Coptic Martyrs of Libya, is celebrated February 15th in both the Catholic Church and the Coptic Orthodox Church. During the Coptic leader's visit to the Vatican last year, he gave the Pope the relics of the martyrs' blood that will be used in Thursday's liturgy. Today we hand over part of their relics dipped in their blood, shed in the name of Christ for the Church, so that they may be remembered in the martyrology of all the churches of the world, and know we too are surrounded by such a multitude of witnesses, Tawadros said. Precisely because the saints are one of the main pillars of our churches, beginning with the apostles Peter, Paul, and Mark, he said, we now write in the martyrology of the churches the new martyrs who have guarded the faith and bore witness to Christ, who did not lose heart in the face of torture and passed on to us a living example in martyrdom. This is a beautiful story, not in the death of the martyrs, but in the unity of the Catholic and the Coptic churches, which I hope one day will be reunited. Yeah. And I know that this beatification uh, had a lot of controversy over it because it's, oh, they were Coptic, not like Latin Roman. I'm not sure I know the difference. <laughs> uh, yeah. There are ways in which they differ, their teachings differ from the Catholic Church, and I should just stop there because I'm not entirely sure and I can't speak to it with any authority, but yeah. we are very close. You know, the two churches are very close in their teachings, in their veneration of saints and Mary, and in many ways, you know, we hold many, many things in common, and, and it, it is my hope that one day we will be reunited. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the controversy is that um, if they're... Coptic Orthodox, I guess they're not under the Pope, or like they don't see themselves under the Pope. Yeah, yeah, yeah they, yeah. they have their own uh, leader. But, you know, the fact that, that they're sharing relics with the Catholic Church and, and we are recognizing their martyrs as saints, I think, is a huge step. It's a huge step into unification. Yeah, and I think it always needs to be reminded that beatifications are infallible. Mm -hmm. So, in some sense it's not a decision of just of pope francis but also of heaven right it's heaven saying these men are martyrs in heaven yeah There was an announcement that i wanted to make i'm sorry i didn't put it in the discord oh oh go ahead it's about the continuing tour of the relics of St. Jude the Apostle. They just Friday updated their schedule to show that they're going to be touring the, the relics in Florida, Georgia, Tennessee, Louisiana, 
in Texas starting February 22nd. Looks like at this time they are touring Florida right now, going city to city. Then they'll head to Georgia and elsewhere from there. I missed it when it came nearby, and I feel very regretful of that. I should have made time to do it, but yeah. If it comes near you, you can go see, and I believe it's the arm bone of... Yeah, it's his forearm and hand, yeah. I'm excited to see it. Um, they're going to be in a couple different churches in my area early next month. And if I can find a list of the dates where they're going to be the schedule, I'll put that in the show notes as well. Before we get to the interview with Michael Litchens, I want to thank the Flower Path patrons. Thank you so much. Thank you for your support. If you want to help make the Flower Path, you can become a patron at Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Path. There's also links in the show notes and links on the website in the support section. Patrons get commercial-free versions of the shows that go out on the regular feed. Rose and Orcateer patrons get extra content, bonus episodes sometimes, extra episodes of Petals and Thorns, a little podcast within a podcast I make sometimes. Orcateer members get all of that, plus they get monthly merch mailings. This month they got tote bags with the Flower Path logo on it. Once again, if you want to help support the show, it's patreon.com slash theflowerpath. I would like to thank new patron Courtney Crabtree. Thank you so much for your support. I also want to thank Nicole Rasmussen, who sent medals, a novena booklet, and a relic card from the St. Dymphna Shrine in Ohio, as well as a very nice note. Thank you so much. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. So next up is my interview with Michael Lichens on the book, The Pope's Exorcist from Sophia Institute Press. This is not the story of the movie or anything like that. This is actually just a question and answer, a very interesting book about Gabriel Amort, the man who was known as the Pope's Exorcist. I'd like to welcome Michael Lichens to The Flowered Path. How are you doing today? 
I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for having me here, Mr. Renner. Well, today we're going to be talking about a book from Sophia Institute Press called The Pope's Exorcist, 101 Questions About Father Gabriella Amorte. So what is your involvement with this book? So with a couple, I didn't edit this book, but in a couple of the other Amorth books we published here at Sophia Institute Press, I had a hand in just organizing and editing. I'm a huge fan of Father Amorth, to put it bluntly. I can almost, it's almost too hard for me to try to remain objective about him because I just love the guy so much. So unfortunately with his passing, when we decided we wanted to publish and promote more of his books, I asked if I could maybe step in and talk about these as they come out. So who was Father Gabriella Amorth and how did he become known as the Pope's exorcist? Well, he started out as a young man up in northern Italy in the area of Medina, born there in 1925. Early on, he thought he might have a chance to become a priest. Particularly, he was friends with Blessed Giacomo Alberoni, who is up for canonization soon, and he very explicitly thought you should be joining not just a religious order, but my religious order. He got to talk to Padre Pio about this. And he was ready to become a priest, but then World War II happened, and suddenly his father had to do very different ministries. He didn't join the priesthood. He ended up joining the resistance in Italy, fighting against Mussolini and the Germans. So in a way, I like to say he was fighting evil from his teenage years. It wasn't spiritual evil, but still a form of evil in the governments at the time. Sure. He then went into politics and journalism, assuming he could find work as a Christian Democrat politician. He edited several newspapers, but the call to the priesthood still came back to him. He also saw Padre Pio at least once a year to get spiritual advice and counseling. And finally, he took the plunge, joined the Paulist priesthood under Blessed Giacomo, and mostly edited Catholic newspapers, things like that. He still worked as a journalist. But he, through a chance encounter, he met Candido Amanti, who's, aside from Father Amorth, probably the most famous exorcist of the last hundred years. And Amanti was getting up in age. He needed to retire, and he needed to train a new assistant. And at this time, the Catholic Church wasn't emphasizing exorcisms at all, so there weren't a lot of candidates to take over. And Amorthy at first, I actually love it because at first Amorth was like, no, I'm a trickster. I'm a joker. I don't take things seriously. I can't be an exorcist. But it turned out those were the very things that made him incredible with people who were undergoing spiritual tortures because he had a lot of sensitivity. He would joke with them, be very casual with them. And so under Armonti's guide, he became an exorcist with the Diocese of Rome and unlike so many other exorcists, he was not afraid to talk to people. He wrote two of his own books. He did numerous interviews, which is what we collect in these books, and as well as many articles. And he was a radio broadcaster as well. So after that, he became known as the Pope's exorcist because being in the Diocese of Rome, that meant he answered to the Pope of Rome. And he got to meet all the popes and encourage them to promote exorcisms. And under his watchful eye, Italy went from, I want to say, less than 20 exorcists to over 200 by the time he died. So a lot of great work he did behind and in front of the scenes. How common are exorcisms today? According to Father Amorth and the his International Association of Exorcists, they've actually become much more common in the last 40 years. 
Morse would say he would see dozens of people a day, hundreds of people a week, and he'd say less than 2% of those people ever really needed an exorcism. But the desire for them has gone up tremendously, and exorcists are finding themselves working more and more, especially as faith declines and people start looking for other spiritual works they can exploit. Does every diocese have an exorcist? They're supposed to. Now, <laughs> supposed to be in the key word, that was a something the Rome has even said mo- numerous times, that not every diocese is as quick to find an exorcist. So yes, there should be one, at least in North America, I'm glad to say that most dioceses I've talked to have an exorcist on call. I think many people are under the impression that exorcisms are a once-and-done kind of things, but yeah, many require multiple sessions, right? Absolutely. Some people found great comfort in just having one prayer. Father Amorth would pray a quick prayer of deliverance over them, and they were usually fine. This is especially true in what you have, what are called infestations. That's where a demon takes over a physical object, your classic haunted house sort of thing. Those can sometimes be done in just one and done. But with many people, Father Amorth would see them once a week for years. His last patient, a lady who went by the name Christina, She still needed an exorcism even after he had died and performed multiple exorcisms on her. How does an exorcist discern between demonic possession and mental illness? There's a couple ways. One, most exorcists now have psychiatrists they work with. So a psychiatrist, uh, Father Morth always said that whether it's mental illness or spiritual possession, they still need healing. So in his work, he was there to bring that healing. So the psychiatrist is usually one of the first people you would want to talk to and call to see if there's something going on, see if there's an underlying mental illness that, unfortunately, even here in the United States, mental illness isn't caught right away in a lot of people. And some people had no idea they were even suffering from one until they met Father Amorthan, his psychiatrist. But he would also do spiritual tests, and these would include having the, what he called patients, come in, he would hold holy objects to them and objects that might be holy but aren't to see if they had a different reaction to each. If they react to one but not the other, that's usually a good sign. And even in cases where he's not 100% sure, he would do what's called a minor exorcism. This can be as simple as making the sign of a cross over a person and praying for the Holy Spirit to guard them. But this would often evoke a response from any demonic activity. Of course, there's also cases where demons will hide. Hide in what sense? Hide as in they try to make sure they're not noticed by the exorcist. They will resist. They will give false names. Father Amorth likes to remind us, and we should be reminded of this, that the demons are liars. It's kind of just what they do. There was actually an incident where Father Amorth thought he had exorcised a person because the demon promised he would leave. He did not leave. And when Father Amorth confronted him in the next exorcist, like, why'd you say you'd leave? He said, I'm a demon. I lie. Yeah, I imagine it would be very hard to trust anything that comes from that realm. You'd think so. It's it's unfortunate. In a couple of stories I've read and accounts I've been given, people have talked about like where they initially thought the demon was, say, the ghost of a little girl is a classic one that's even featured in horror movies, or will pretend to be something else, but people will automatically think, oh, it's spiritual, it must be okay, but obviously that's not always the case. What's the difference between demonic possession and demonic oppression? 
Demonic oppression is the sec. So I mentioned infestation, you know, your classic haunted house. Obsession is the second stage of possession before you get into the full on one. And that's where a person will have obsession with the dead, with the demonic, with spiritual entities to a point where even I'm spacing on his name. There's a great 19th century Catholic theologian who had turned from Satanism, but he talked about like your mind is just constantly going over thinking you're going to get more power or get more favors from the demon. But this is also the stage where physical injuries can happen. This is where you can have your sleep interrupted, your dreams are infested. And that stage, your body is still free. You can still walk away. Possession is when the demon takes over the person's body and is actively oppressing them, spirit and body. So how does someone become possessed? It can happen in a couple ways. Oftentimes, there has to be some form of will there, some form of an act of the will that allowed it to enter. But humans get tricked. These things are much older, thousands of years old, well, tens of thousands. You know, they exist out of time itself. So they can often trick us. Like I was saying, many times they'll use the little girl ghost thing or things like that. But when it happens, then it becomes a battle of the wills between the person themselves, the demon, and usually the exorcist. Is it more common among people who have involved themselves with the occult? According to Father Amorth, that was majority of people he saw. People who went to a, Italy has a has a long long history of Western esotericism, mm-hmm. so people would get involved in things like uh, one case he, I remember that stood out to me was a mother-in-law who brought spiritual oppression to a house because she wanted to put a curse on her son-in-law. She didn't like this boy. She didn't like that they were dating her daughter. So she put a cur- went to a psychic and said, I want to buy a curse. If you're anything like me and you love horror movies, you're going, oh, this isn't going to end well. And it didn't right. end well. It included a lot of oppression. Father Amorth had to do several exorcisms on the house and on the son-in-law. I know, unfortunately, several people who were involved in the occult, and I always warn them. <laughs> they think they're going to... They think they're going to win. They think they're going to control these things. And I'm, I always tell them, like, they're going to let you think you can control them for a little while, and then eventually uh, it's going to go the other way. Precisely. Yeah. There was actually Western occultists in the Renaissance. There was a book that I'm, once again, I should have written it down the name of the book if I thought I was going to bring it up, but it would encourage priests, like Catholic priests, to summon demons and then try to exercise them as a show of power. The Church condemned that right away, and Father Amorth would say, they'll let you think you're in charge, but at the end of the day, these are timeless beings. They have more knowledge and more power than we can imagine. Yeah, that's the danger with this stuff. Mm -hmm. For people who get into this idea of, you know, summoning these things and... it really appeals to their ego that they can summon them mm-hmm. and, and they can control them. And it's so dangerous to my mind. What do you think you're dealing with here? You know? Oh, absolutely. And father Morth talks about uh, the pride of Lucifer being what it is. That's his chief sin that even if Lucifer was able to get redemption, he would deny it. As one demon said to father Amorth, they think themselves greater than God because while God created the heavens and created this order, they were able to rebel against it and create hell. So they see themselves as greater than God even. 
that pride, I think, comes into the occultism where we as humans, we naturally like to think we're in charge. You know, we dam rivers, we split the atom, we can do what we want. And it's hard for us to imagine that there are some things in this universe we have no control over. Yeah, yeah. And I, not to dwell too long on it, but oh, of course. I often tell these folks, if this stuff is so great, then why aren't occultists ruling the world? You know, why don't they have, you know, <laughs> the, and I know some people think they are, but I mean, in a real and obvious sense, you know, why aren't they, yeah. you know, where's, where's all this power going, you know? Sure. And unfortunately, it makes it worse when you find out so many powerful people did turn to the occult. Uh, Father Morth was familiar with that with Italy. You, of course, had the Propaganda Due Lodge. You had all these Julius Evola and his coterie. You had all these fascist and pseudo-fascist people using wizards to try to bring about their power. So it's it's not just for us hipsters who want to go see a tarot reader. <laughs> Well, it doesn't always end in a, in a nice way, and I know. That the, exactly. Thankfully, there's there's exorcists to clean up the mess, which sadly they mm. often have to do. Mm-hmm. No, and in fact, I believe you guys over there in Pennsylvania had a pretty famous exorcist whose name escapes me. But uh, back during the seventies, you're talking about yes, yeah, yes, uh, I, yeah. Yeah, I had a fellow on who wrote a book about the coal region, and he was talking about one specific haunting, and he brought up the exorcist, and I'm drawing a blank on his name as well. But I know who you're talking about, yeah. <laughs> no, he was at St. Bonaventure's, and I, oh, I should remember his name, because he, he possibly could be of American Amorth, but... Was he a, a Capuchin, I think? Yes, he was. Yeah. He was a Capuchin yeah, yeah, yeah. priest. If I can dig up his name, I'll put it in here for, so, for people to know who we're talking about. No worries, but... Uh, and I remember some of his stories involved haunt, very famous haunted houses where it had to be cleaned up because the family decided to get an Ouija board or they decided to hold a seance and whatever they invited wasn't a ghost like it initially told them it was. It was something far more malevolent. Yeah, that's the problem. These things lie. Mm-hmm. All the time. Yeah. Can souls of the damned possess people or is it always demons? It's always demons. As far as I know, there's there's been infestations where there's the ghosts or the spirits of people who are in purgatory or things like that. In such cases, an exorcist would have something as simple. You don't even need an exorcist for this, but you can just have your house blessed and have a mass set at your house if possible. Any priest can do that. But there's no story I know of where a ghost is trying to possess anyone the demon may say it's a ghost or a spirit of the dam, but it's something much, much older. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've had some stories about people being visited by poor souls. And mm-hmm. while it can be scary, it usually ends up being a positive thing if the person has a mass said for them exactly. and prays for them and stuff. It's because the uh, purgatorial souls are not damned. They're on the way to being saved. You know, they're in that process. No, and uh, usually great positive of praying for them is then you have people in your corner praying for you when you die because those souls remember as you would anyone who pulls you out of purgatory you're going to remember them and so it's very positive as scary they can be ghost stories but they're not they always end on a positive note yeah yeah there's a woman she's a a german princess igenia von der leyen and we're Mm -hmm. doing a series on her right now for our patrons on the show but she was visited by poor souls for something like eight years in the 1920s, and she kept a diary. And some of these oh, wow. 
they start out as like it sounds like a horror movie. I mean, they're really yeah. frightening. But each one, like as she sort of gets to know the soul and prays for it and so forth, it becomes you know this sort of uh, redemptive story and turns out okay, you know. But some of them are quite frightening, at least in the beginning. Oh, I know. I I've been to the Museum of Purgatorial Souls in Rome, which if you ever get to Rome, it's near Castel San Angelo. It's a fascinating place. It tells the stories of people who visited, been visited by purgatorial souls and has uh, what the museum says are evidence of these. And these are things like handprints burnt into books or things like that. And it's at first frightening, but then as you hear the stories, you're like, this is actually really beautiful. It shows humanity working and praying for each other in a way that's incredible. Yeah. As I got older, I began to look at purgatory as like a very positive thing. You know, if if you get there, you're going to heaven. It's just a matter of time. So it's not a bad thing. Yes, exactly. So who was the first exorcist? That would be Jesus, our Lord. He set the standard for exorcism in the Gospels. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell of when he met a garrison demoniac who would live among the tombs, cut himself with stones, had so much strength that no one could tie him down or capture him. And Jesus came and the demons immediately recognized him and begged and pleaded, don't cast us back into the pit, cast us into these pigs, which at their insistence Jesus did, but the pigs drowned themselves. And this was considered, especially at the time, like an incredible power. It frightened the people who saw this. They were more frightened by Jesus telling the demons, get out of this man, than they were even of the demoniac. But he set the standard for showing us what an exorcism looks like, and that story has all the trappings you see in an exorcism. So he's considered the first and the model exorcist. What tools does the average exorcist carry to help him? Like, which sacramentals? Yeah, that's a great question. Father Amorth would keep... Uh, he had a little briefcase that always included his cro- a couple crosses, a larger one plus his pocket rosary, some holy water, and usually relics of certain saints. He was very devoted to Padre Pio. He, he knew Padre Pio, so he would often ask Padre Pio through third-class relics to help intercede for the exorcist. And at least in one exorcism, the demon confirmed that Padre Pio was in the room helping with the exorcism. Is there a patron saint of exorcists? Uh, Father Amorth had several. There's a couple of saints you can go to. Aloysius Gonzaga is one. He was a well-known Jesuit and an exorcist. And so a lot of exorcists will call him their patron. His exorcisms were also depicted in art, so it leaves behind just some wonderful, wonderful works. But uh, Father Amorth had, of course, Padre Pio. He also considered his mentor, Candido Amanti, to be on the path to sainthood, so he would often invoke him and ask him for assistance. And of course, there's the Immaculate Heart of Mary, which Father Amorth always consecrated himself to and thought every nation should be consecrated to her. Mary is a powerful force. The demons in the exorcisms of Father Amorth would often talk about how they couldn't touch him, they couldn't hurt him because he was protected by Mary. And for whatever reason, Mary is a terrifying presence to the demons. Yeah, I've read many stories about it where they just get horrified. Even, um, I'm trying to remember, there's one apparition from the 1800s where the devil was appearing to the seer and like tormenting her. 
But as soon as Mary would appear, it would just, you know, the devil would just shriek and just run away. No, they recognize her. She's the one who will stamp her foot onto the head of the snake as we depict her in all art form from the book of Revelation. Amen. And I think that's something they remember very clearly. Yeah, yeah. So in Hollywood films, we often see possessed people manifesting extraordinary things, like their heads turning mm-hmm. around 180 degrees, green skin and the like. Does this actually happen? Uh, it's a little overblown, but there are things like that that will happen. Father Amorth had several incidences. He got sped on a lot by possessed people. One of the things that would happen, though, is occasionally they would manifest nails to spit at him or sharp objects. Out of nowhere, it would come directly from their mouth and into his face. He does talk about the extraordinary strength many of them have, that it takes, you know, four or five people to hold them down when they're in a rage. And this would be like sometimes even like older people who should not need this much strength to keep them down. And of course, there's the creepy stuff that will happen. There's usually when the demons are attacking one person, they want to attack everyone around them. So you'll have the haunted house effects, the cold spots, the lights dimming and things like that. But as far as I know, I haven't read one where the head turns completely around as much as that scared the heck out of me in The Exorcist. Sure, yeah. Have you ever been in the presence of an exorcism? Only minor exorcisms, I'm glad to say, for like houses and things like that. But it's a powerful experience. Yeah, I imagine it's quite moving and at least frightening, at least at first, to behold this. It's frightening. What I found most incredible is how much it helped my faith personally, because it was a nice reminder that God isn't, he's not the indifferent deist power that we sometimes imagine him to be. He's an active and involved God. And you can see that directly in exorcisms. If someone feels that they or someone they know needs an exorcist, where should they begin? Uh, They should probably begin with their local priest. And I know I'm saying that not every local priest is very good at their job, and I know that, so sometimes that can be frustrating to see. But something as simple as asking your priest to come over and bless the house and bless you. And anytime you're starting to think there's something demonic going on, the first thing you should do is try to get back to faith. Go to confession if you haven't been in a while. Participate in the sacraments. If the priest can't help you with the initial blessing or anything else, then they can start the process of maybe seeing if an exorcism is needed. And you can also pray. Uh, Father Morth pointed out that many of us can do what he does, which is pray over people, bless them, and call upon the saints for them. And that's something we can always do. You don't even need a priest for it. Yeah, and we do have spiritual domain over our own bodies always, so we can exactly. Yeah, we can always tell things to get out. Yes, Adam Bly, who's an interesting author, you might want to check out. He has written a couple books about spiritual warfare. He is an expert on demonic entities and theology of demons, and he's been present at several exorcisms. And something he's pointed out is anytime he's never been in a place where there isn't a priest around, but he's realizing there's something going on. He'll just pray a litany of saints, and that will oftentimes do so much good for whatever's going on. Yeah, holy water, uh, St. Michael the Archangel prayer, these are great as Mm -hmm. well. Yeah, we have the tools, which is very good to know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Michael Lichens, thank you for your time, and thank you for talking to us today about Father Gabriella Amorth. The book is The Pope's Exorcist, 101 Questions About Father Gabriella Amorth. Thank you for your time today. 
Thank you so much, Mr. Renner. It's been a joy. All right, that's it for this episode of The Flowered Path. Thank you for listening, everybody. Justin, why don't you give your substack for everybody once again? Okay, yes. Uh, my substack is astrologyofthesaints.substack.com. Maybe someday it'll just be a dot .com. Someday soon. I'm always working on articles on there. Really, at the time of this recording, I was working on the Servant of God, Leo Hendricks. Um, I have others coming up of just a multitude of saints, and I investigate mainly their deaths because those are often extremely notable, but also different miracles that they do and some other miracles of the church. And again, that link is in the show notes, but it's also linked at the Flower Path in the About section as well. So you can find your way there from the Flower Path website or type it in directly. All right. Thank you for listening, everybody. If you like what you hear and you could give us a like and a follow wherever you are, if you want to leave a nice review, that would help as well. And we are asking folks to subscribe on YouTube, even if you don't listen there, because we're trying to build up the subscribers there. Doesn't cost anything and it helps us out. Thank you once again. And we'll be back soon with another episode. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.